The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Hi, Mia. Hi, Andrea. How are you this morning? I'm doing all right. I, I, you know, we're again, sort of weathering the COVID crisis by staying home, which our governor has issued an order around and we're okay. We're uh, managing as a family, but it's a difficult time for people. It sure is. And I know a lot of my friends and colleagues are managing their family lives with their children at home and not in school all day. And in our household, we are managing to 80-year-old grandmas. <laughs> yes. So it's a different sort of management process. But I think, you know, we're all doing our best. And I think that we're all pretty grateful for our good health right now and enough room to roam. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of folks, especially been having conversations with others at Committee for Children who are feeling pretty isolated. A lot of, some, I've talked to some friends in Kentucky last night, they were talking about how they have set up virtual sessions with their mental health providers. And we have a, I think, a very difficult, challenging topic today with our guest, Jordan Posmentier. We're going to talk about suicide prevention, suicidality, specifically in youth. And so I just want to say this is a sensitive topic and our listeners should be prepared to hear some things about suicide and suicide prevention today. And if anyone needs help around that, there is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which you can access by calling one 800 273-8255. That's right, Andrea. And you can also text if you'd rather. You can text the word TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741741. And that's free and anonymous. And it's 24-7 crisis support in the U.S. from the crisis text line. And I'm sure that there are many people who themselves have had experiences or had their lives touched by by suicide and the devastating effects of that or may themselves be feeling hopeless or isolated during this crisis. And so I hope that folks are getting the help they need, that they're reaching out for connection, that they're getting resources and support. And I you know, wanted to share that my family, we definitely have been affected by this topic. Someone I'm very close to in my family in their adolescence had multiple attempts at suicide. We are so thankful that they weren't successful attempts, but it was quite devastating for us as a family. And and I think often about all the wonderful things that she has contributed to the world that would not have happened if those had been successful. And it is one reason that for me that I feel really connected to this work. So I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to talk about this with our expert in policy and advocacy, Jordan. And maybe you'd like to welcome him for us, Mia. I would. Thank you, Andrea. Jordan Osmentier works with us at Committee for Children, mostly around social and emotional learning at state and federal levels and does our advocacy and policy work. But today we are talking about a very specific topic that Jordan has spent a good part of his career involved with. And Jordan, I would, I'd like to welcome you, first of all, and just kind of start things off by asking kind of what led you into this work and how has that evolved over your career? Thanks, Mia. Hi. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So how did I get to Committee for Children? I started my career as a New York City public school teacher 
And from there, I was inspired to go to law school and become a lawyer, practiced health law for a while. But my heart was always in advocacy and policy. That's kind of where I spent my spare hours daydreaming and thinking about. That's the kind of problem solving I really enjoy. So I looked for opportunities to sort of flex that muscle and found myself working on legislation, various parts of the country, nationally. And I got back into advocating around issues affecting young people. From those, I went from California to Washington State, worked in research for a little while, and then made my way to Committee for Children, where I could sort of mush together my experience as a public school teacher, a lawyer, a researcher, and really double down on advocacy across the country. You have quite a background, Jordan. We've talked about how you've gained a lot of expertise in different areas, and we're really happy to have you (laughs) working on our team and applying that here. I think that there's a lot of relevance to this topic all the time, but I want to just start out with how you're seeing the state of the world right now with the effects of the COVID-19 outbreak and how that's kind of influencing your work. So it changes everything. We are in a different place than we were three weeks ago. As we usually advance social emotional learning, we do it through a variety of gateways from employability skills to academic readiness and also student mental wellness. Well, I'm seeing very quickly the centrality of student mental wellness as we go through this pandemic. I've read now a number of news reports, telemedicine is up, calls to the hotline are up, it's on people's minds. It's both disconcerting and reassuring. So it's disconcerting that we're seeing the numbers up, but it's reassuring that people are actually seeking help and calling that line when they need to. And I just want to say that over the past year, there's been a lot of articles in the news about youth suicide. And can you give us some of the the facts and statistics about suicide in particular in this this country? Yeah. So suicide rates for young people are, are really disconcerting. Between 2000 and 2007, kids who were between 15 and 19 years old, the rates were already high but stable. And then after 2007, it jumped 76%. From 2007 to 2017, we saw a dramatic spike, and that pace was even faster from 2014 to 2017. It jumped to about 10% on average versus 3% in the earlier years. And then it's even more troubling that it's happening with younger people as well, kids 10 to 14. Those rates were going down until around, again, 2007, when they nearly tripled between 07 and 17. So we're, we're watching really steep increases across different age brackets of young people. And Jordan, do we know why this is happening? I know that I've certainly heard lots of different theories about media and social media and pressure on kids, but can you tell us more about the prevailing theories? Well, you, you kind of named them. Those are the ones I've heard too. Oh. <laughs> and it's really hard to know Why? Because suicide already, we understand, is multifaceted. So there are many factors that go into an increased risk around youth suicide. Social media, you can point to a very strong correlation right around 07, where kids were getting increased access to online sites. That could be a contributing factor of significance. We don't know. It's very hard for methodological reasons to like chart a causal study and actually tell you why. So I think we can spend a lot of time on why, but we can also spend a lot of time on what do we need to do to protect against the unknown why. I mean, that's always where I want to jump. (laughs) How do we, for if it's happening at all, how are we preventing it? But I think some of our listeners might not be very steeped in this or, or understand some of the mechanisms. So I wondered if you could first share 
what some of the risk factors are, what would make a child more likely to consider commit suicide, and perhaps if there are more demographics or characteristics that educators, parents should be aware of. Yeah, let's talk about risk factors, and then then I'll move over and talk about demographics. And I'll also tell you, I'm going to talk to you about this through a lens of social emotion learning. There are other factors beyond those that I'm going to discuss that are probably relevant everywhere from family history to what's going on in your home life, other family issues. I'm going to leave those off the table just now so I can focus where I'm uh, comfortable in my expertise. They will undergird a lot of the conversation regardless. They are significant indicators. So look at the precursors to when you see suicidal thoughts and behaviors in kids. Risk factors include feelings of hopelessness, anxiety, substance use, child sexual abuse, They don't necessarily cause suicide, but they do help predict it. And as kids present these issues, it's also really important to pay careful attention and respond appropriately when you see them occurring. Those are the risk factors. Let's talk about the demographics. Suicide is something we need to take seriously for every kid in the country, the whole population. We also need to pay like really special attention where the trends are exacerbated and there are differences among subgroups. So let's break it down. This is sort of what the Centers for Disease Control did between boys and girls. Girls tend to have more suicidal ideation and more frequent suicide attempts than boys. That's particularly true of black and Latina girls. In particular, they have really high prevalence of reported suicidal thoughts and, and attempts. Boys, on the other hand, complete suicides more frequently than girls do. They represent about 78% of all youth suicide. Now look at different kinds of subgroups. Native American youth are disproportionately at risk. About 35% of suicides among Native Americans were among young people, compared to just 11% among the white population. Look at the gay, lesbian, and bisexual teens. They are also at significant risk of attempting suicide compared to their heterosexual peers. And then lastly, I think folks who live in these communities can appreciate this. In rural communities and communities that are underserved, that have less access to available services, they also have higher rates of youth suicide. Jordan, I want to bring up a topic that I feel is important to talk about in terms of risk factors. And I know it's not along the same lines that you're talking about, but it's something that as I've done work in bullying prevention has come up time and again. And one of the things that is a risk factor in terms of attempts and attempts that are completed is when people have firearms, when kids have access to firearms. And I wonder if you wanted to to speak to that at all. I think that is why boys are completers more so than girls. When they have access to firearms, the increase of self-harm is much greater. I don't have the stats in front of me, but yeah, one of the best ways to keep a kid from taking their life by gun is to remove guns from the household or at least make them inaccessible. Right. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that show promise in the prevention space around this? Sure. So my team went through a literature review to try to figure out what are the best interventions for youth suicide? What what do we need to really think about, encourage in, in the policy space to make sure that we're doing our best to develop? And we can talk about programs, and then we can also talk about the need to foster certain protective factors that mitigate against those risk factors that I just discussed. I don't know which way you want to take it, but There are school-based programs. There's the helpline that you mentioned earlier. There are different kinds of interventions that work for all kids. And then there are more targeted interventions that are designed for some kids. And each one of those has different outcomes, different research. And 
you really have to think about your kids, your community, and what's like the appropriate inter- intervention for them. What, what are they experiencing that we need to address through an intervention? Is there a place where those interventions are cataloged? I, for instance, the CASEL Guide, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, references evidence-based programs around SEL. And I know there are uh, SEL programs can help support prevention around suicide. They're not yeah. always specifically focused on that. So is there some... Is there a place that educators or administrators should be looking for good interventions? Well, I'll give you a starting point, a jumping off point. That's the literature review we wrote, and you can see it on our website at cfchildren.org. We looked at all school-based interventions designed to prevent youth suicide that had a randomized control trial. So the the best researched school-based interventions, we found eight of them. There are many more. I will admit there's there's a chance we've missed some, but we did a thorough as we could literature review to try to find out all we could. And of those, I'll tell you, it's really hard to study these things because while the prevalence rate is high, it is not common. It, find, you know, figuring out how to do a, a real trial on this can be really challenging. But of the eight, we were able to see outcomes such as decreased suicidal attempt, decreased suicidal ideation, They also studied whether they decreased students' anxiety, students' helplessness. And you can just see the eight, see what the outcomes are that they were able to demonstrate, and then select accordingly if you are in the position to do so, say, as an administrative leader in an educational setting. I'd like to also clarify something around that, because as an organization, we do provide social-emotional learning curricula. We do provide bullying prevention curricula. And I've done a lot of work in my past around bullying prevention And in conversations with decision makers and districts and educators, I generally try to make it clear that if your primary concern is youth suicide, that selecting an appropriate suicide prevention program is something that you want to think about. It seems like there's a lot of, we get conflated, I think, with like bullying prevention because Mm -hmm. people do so much association between bullying and suicide. And so I'm wondering if you can talk to that a little bit, because I've just found in in the past that it's an issue that's come up over and over again. Yeah, I tried it when people are trying to target specifics for an intervention. I, I encourage the rethink of making this comprehensive. SEL can be part of a comprehensive set of solutions designed to prevent youth suicide. We demonstrate in our literature review that that actually makes sense because SEL serves in many ways as protective factors for kids. But also, it's not enough. There are kids that are going to need more help. In that case, you do want to layer on top of your tier one interventions, your universal for all kids interventions, tier two interventions, mental health access, access to telehealth for kids who are staying at home, for example, would be particularly useful right now. You can have small groups. My daughter goes to kindergarten and already they're laying a preventive foundation. They have a a lovely counselor at her school who pulls out girls in a small group and just has conversations. She loves it. It's great. I would not call that youth suicide prevention. I would call that laying a foundation for fostering a positive school culture. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned in, in that response and previously protective factors. So what are the things that are sort of counter to the risk factors that you identified? Yeah. So this is where social emotional learning really does come in in a big way. You look at each one of those risk factors, hopelessness, anxiety, substance use, child sexual abuse, and you can point to protective factors that mitigate against each one. For example, hopelessness can be mitigated through social emotional learning, self-awareness, self-management, fostering positive relationship skills, pro-social skills. 
anxiety, very similar. You can add on SEL, social emotional learning of responsible decision making, social awareness, substance uses, very similar. So as you start fostering these protective factors, you're, you're giving kids insulation from a time where they might feel adversity in a way that, that might trigger the, the desire to self-harm. The more insulation you can get, the more you foster those protective factors, the, the more you reduce the risk. So what about right now? I mean, I, I imagine that many who are sort of in a way sheltering in place maybe hadn't been laying that foundation or may not even be aware of some of the things that their children were experiencing, but now being in close proximity, not having seen that during the school day, but maybe seeing that at home, what can people do? I'm sure that there's a correlation between suicidal ideation and feeling isolated. You've talked about that. So are there things that researchers or policymakers are considering or want, or you think people should know from those areas that can help support them during this time in particular? Well, we know having open conversations with your kids is a good starting point. I'm thinking both about what can kids do and then what can the adults do who are around those kids during this time. There are, I guess, let's say gentle ways that adults can check in, observe, really tune into what's going on with your kid during this time. Look for opportunities to foster those protective factors, those mitigative factors. They can be as simple as fostering a routine that helps a kid self-regulate, which could be gardening or you watch your favorite show together. You have a conversation about something and listen to how the kid's talking about it. Are the descriptors changing? Are they thinking differently? And then when they are, you start thinking, okay, what are the tools in my toolkit to help, say, generate more self-awareness, more self-management? And I'll just reiterate, when adults run out of these ideas, that's when you call the hotline. If you feel like you're getting to the end of your toolkit, call the hotline, text the hotline. People are experts in helping sort through some of these yeah. issues. Well, and yeah. I think just being aware of your own mental well-being during this time is so important and aware that that does affect your children. I think it's like not just, sometimes it feels like I'll call for them, but also for yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's important that we as adults don't accidentally shed some of our you know, negative emotions around the situation to our kids if we can help it. They'll mm -hmm. have their own experiences during this time. And we don't want to make assumptions about what those experiences will be. I'll give my personal example. My kid loves being home. She's six. She likes hanging out with the dog and sitting at the table and doing a coloring exercise that we got from the school. Uh, she She's kind of chill. And I don't want to change that from her. I think it's fine that she's having those experiences. And far be it from me to try to you know, shift her thinking about what's on my mind. Yeah. And, you know, Jordan, it's just speaking about how difficult this time is, you know, you can imagine a scenario, many scenarios where parents of teens of older kids are already struggling with screen time and, you know, are already aware that there are some unhealthy behaviors and social media had already been trying to figure out what to do about this. And now here we are confined very little else to do and very difficult to manage, yeah. especially when you have older kids who are not as easy to compel. I think, <laughs> I think also I want to add to that older kids who, whether or not it's screen time or things like uh, kids who are very concerned with the state of the world mm -hmm. and like what this indicates and have much more understanding than I think they're given credit for <laughs> of social conflicts, environmental concerns, those sorts of things. I imagine that 
in many ways, like adults, they can get sucked into this spiral of information that is very negative online. And they're kind of feeding that anxiety and their brains are at a different stage of development and they have varying levels of coping <laughs> skills or mechanisms. So yeah, I'd love to hear more what you're yeah, thinking think, about that. I feel like that's true of some of my adult friends and family yes. as well. I know some family who've gone on a news diet they they just had it and they need to re-regulate themselves because they're over-consuming and feeling really lousy about it. I have to say, yeah, it is disconcerting to think like, okay, social media might be a culprit around youth suicide and we might be exacerbating that, that now because that is the primary way that kids are going to be communicating as they stay at home. Yeah, that's a problem. I think, you know, I'm probably the wrong guy to give social media parenting advice since my kid doesn't have any social media right now. But find a way to regulate that. There should be a way to turn off the screens and build like positive alternatives. Get some time doing something different. Break the cycle if you see it forming. And there's also a need to like figure out how to foster pro-social skills online. That's a thing that we're mm -hmm. still working on, but I know that comes up in media literacy and digital citizenship. And now more than ever, ever I think we have to have really smart, responsible behavior as kids spend a lot more of their daylight hours engaging remotely with others. Right. I think this time, as we come out of it, we'll be able to look back and think about what we learned in this very, very intense period of remote working, remote socializing, all of that that's going on right now. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how much we go back to things the way they were and how much we will learn something and maybe our lives will be a little bit different. Yeah, I was like you, Jordan, you know, our, my children are similar <laughs> age to yours. And I was thinking the other day how we do a virtual circle time, my daughter's preschool. My son is went to the same preschool and it really feeds him to have that time with other kids and to go through some of those activities and have those connections. He also received two cards from friends in the mail the other day where they'd made cards and that it's like that double-edged sword of connecting online, right? Like it, it has having that everyday connection with a group of kids and this reminder of a time when he felt like in this very small preschool setting, he was very connected to those kids and those teachers has been really good for him. My daughter, on the other hand, runs away from circle time, <laughs> is very upset to participate in it and feels some. there's something about, you know, she's having some anxiety and some emotions in general. And I think that having that on display for others or being or feeling like she has to participate in this altered form of what her life was before is, is hard for her and she's too little to understand it. So even in younger kids, I think, you know, I've just been thinking about how this doesn't and doesn't help yeah. in the moment. Yeah, definitely. My kid needs to get out of the house. Otherwise we're going to have We'll just call them more behavioral disruptions. Yes. It's it's just feeling cooped up and under-socialized. Those things will, uh, yeah, generate mm -hmm. certain results that we don't really want to have. And a lot of schools are and educators are working on ways to help with remote learning and, and talking about prevention and promotion of protective factors. What is remote or distance prevention? Is that possible? 
everything's possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're, we're somewhat in uncharted territory. I'll tell you that I know that in some of this emergency policy that's coming forth, increased access to telehealth and telemedicine, that's, that's happening. It was already happening to some extent. Now it's happening even more. And that serves a preventive factor, particularly along that tier two, more targeted intervention, more intense small groups or individuals. That's definitely happening. I'll also say, and this is true of our organization, but school systems as well, a lot of online opportunity for chances to practice mindfulness or emotional regulating self-management. There are a lot of tools you can use that are just, you know, screens talking at you or even interacting with you. And I think now's a good chance to see what works for you and your kids. And you have no shortage. I don't know if about you, but I'm getting bombarded. Everything's coming at me <laughs> like, oh, here, click this site. This will help you. And yeah, it's it's on us somewhat to be the curators of that experience to figure out, well, my, my kid isn't really going to dig this particular cartoon interface of a, an SEL intervention. But my kid really does like this this other thing where, you know, a grown up is talking to them in a, in a really gentle way. And there are interesting characters involved as well. You got to find out like, what's the right thing for your kid. If it is about anxiety and, and thinking through how to respond to anxiety in your children, okay, that's that's one intervention. If it's just helping your kids focus through the series of distractions, well, that's something else. And I really do feel like we're, folks, we're in the digital age. We've got no shortage. I, I think the challenge is like sorting through the pile. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jordan, our, our podcast is called Grow Kinder, and we do focus on kindness in most of our interviews in one way or another. And I'm just kind of curious uh, about your perspective on kindness and how it can be a protective factor and what can regular people do? Let's say you don't necessarily have someone in your immediate family that you have concern about, but how can people employ their kindness to to help others in this time? Part of it might be a mindset more than anything. You know, this kindness will work not just for others, but yourself to think that we're all kind of doing this together. We can extend grace to one another. For example, when we're having technological troubles on your teleconference interface. Okay, there's a phrase that keeps going through my head and it really is oriented around kindness. And it is strike bonds over bargains at this time. Bond over bargain. If you can find a way to bond with somebody rather than trying to negotiate with them when you're in conflict or at least not in agreement, I think now's a good time to try that. And it really is just a kindness mindset. Let's reach under the hood of some of what we see on the surface and just go to where people's hearts are. If you see somebody that's resistant right now, there's something going on there and you can try to negotiate with that or you can look through it and see what's, what's really underlying. What bond can we help strike? Work on that rather than the the terms list instead. Good piece of advice. That's interesting. I think also in the context of legislative and policy work, <laughs> I think we've talked a lot about the kind of the things that, you know, like person to person or parents or educators could do. I'm also just curious, I want to pull us back and ask, do policymakers, I'm sure they know about this. And so what measures are they taking to prevent youth suicide or give young people the support they need? Well, it's, I think it's different now, three weeks later than it was previously. But I'll tell you, there's a lot that has been going on in this space. We, we have been tracking legislation across the country. We started seeing an increase over the last several years of legislatures focused on responses to youth suicide. 
more recently, like I think last year we saw Arizona, Louisiana, Illinois, California, Iowa, New York, they all advanced legislation to develop programs to decrease youth suicide. They budgeted funds for that. I do have to say that most of that policy is tier two stuff. It's for kids who are already showing significant signs of emotional dysregulation. We absolutely need tier two interventions. We benefit tremendously from having more health professionals in schools and telehealth access when kids are not in school. We need tier two. But I would also urge lawmakers, and I'm not seeing this enough, I would also urge lawmakers to develop those tier two supports on a foundation of tier one on something for all kids. Once again, that's where social emotional learning comes in. I think not only will that ease the burden of mental health workers who need to reach the kids that are in more desperate need, who might have, but, but it'll also hit kids who might have been otherwise overlooked. You don't mm-hmm. always see the signs present. And so having a universal intervention can make it all that much more likely that you'll have healthy kids growing up and thriving when they're in school. You've mentioned telehealth a few times now, and are there services or resources that you could point educators to at this time, or, or maybe an example of a district or school that is doing that that you've heard of? I don't know specifics well enough. I usually toss the educator back to their central office or their school leader because I don't want to get in the way of whatever specific methods they've got going. Yeah, but it does come online. Uh, This happens actually in particular in in rural settings where they Mm -hmm. don't have access otherwise to healthcare professionals nearby, and they need to think creatively. And the way they do that is to access remote opportunities. I've seen that going on in rural settings in the Northwest, in the Midwest, and I'm sure it's happening elsewhere. There are a lot of issues that policymakers have to work through on privacy and how do you engage medicine within a school setting. That's something that we're working on. I understand Medicaid reimbursements are coming online now for purposes of student mental health more and more. That might be a question that really district admins need to think about if they're not, or educators may ask their districts for support, uh, or if they're thinking about that and, and parents can ask their schools. That's right. Okay. Thank you. So Jordan, in these extraordinary times, I'm just curious as to acts of kindness that you've witnessed. So we know that we're not, you know, in person with people much anymore, but as we've talked about on in this interview that there are lots of ways that people are reaching out to each other. Has there been anything that has really struck you that you thought, oh, that was a particularly kind thing to do? We have friends who have twins very recently. I I think uh, anybody who's had one kid knows that's plenty. Having two in this current climate is a real challenge for them. Uh, Or more. (laughs) Or more. Yes, multiples. My wife has been showing tremendous kindness toward this family. She has been checking in on them remotely, and she's been making a lot of meals and buying a lot of food where they just can't and we're concerned there. I think at this point, they're being very vigilant about staying safe in a way. But what we're trying to do is help them so they don't have to go out as much. And so she's baking these beautiful meals, taking them over, knocking on the door, waving goodbye so that they don't have too close a distance. And it's it's little things like that. That's the most near and dear close to home example that I can think of. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're seeing it everywhere from, you know, a food pantry in the neighborhood to everybody's showing what is a hotline that you can call if your kid needs a meal. My district is providing meals 
basically carte blanche. If nobody's going to go hungry in our neighborhood because of this thing. We didn't grow up with wartime threats on our soil, but this might be very close to that. And in times of war, people pull together in ways that I think should be very heartening for all of us. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of things in our community and my former hometown that are things I wouldn't have thought of. And and then I think people are being very innovative in their kindness. It's like it's forcing some kindness innovation, which is, of course, we wouldn't trade <laughs> for that. But it is good that that's happening. I saw that teachers did a teacher parade through neighborhoods in their district. So they all like got in their cars and the kids came out and stayed on their porches or in front of their apartment buildings or what what have you. And the teachers would slowly drive by and wave and honk to the kids. And I think some of them decorated their cars. And I just thought, man, that's a, that was so special for those kids and very innovative for the teachers to, you know, kind of show support and have a connection without being able to be physically present in their lives right now. So that's very cool. Yeah. It helps me to look far forward in times like this and think, what are we going to tell the next generation once we're through this? Mm -hmm. And we're going to tell the story about the teachers who drove their cars through the neighborhood. Yeah. Are there people in your in your own life or someone in particular that you felt like was a significant connection or support you truly trusted and or was a good example of kindness, especially during a time of stress? I get little bits of kindness and moments in my life from all kinds of people, and it's hard to pick just one. And the way I look for that when I need it, sometimes this sounds terrible, but I I look at old dead authors who Hmm. really provided words of wisdom. They look like rectangles now that sit on my shelf, but they keep me company in times of need. All the way back to like Epicurus or somebody more recent like Bertrand Russell. These are, you know, nerdy things that (laughs) it's wonderful because they're not with us anymore, but their acts of kindness have extended for decades, if not centuries. Oh, I think there's something beautiful about that. Thank you for sharing it. So Jordan, I think I'd like to remind people, we reminded people at the beginning of this podcast, who they can call and where they can look for help. So I'd like to remind people that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Or you can also text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741-741 for free. It's an anonymous 24-7 crisis support line for the U.S. And then, Jordan, are there places people can find out more about you? Anything that you can share if they need to follow up as far as checking on your work? Sure. There's an easy way to sign up to stay informed as an advocate who wants to advance social-emotional learning policy, youth suicide prevention policy, you just go to the website and we make it very easy. You can find it on the advocacy page. There's a sign-up. And so we'll keep you informed with opportunities where you can raise your voice to your lawmakers at key moments to help advance stuff like this. They need to hear from you. They need to know what matters. They need to be able to prioritize it. And the only way they do that is from hearing from constituents who care. We can really make that happen. I'd also encourage you to look at the literature review It has those programs that I didn't name names, but they're all included in there. And you can kind of work through what could really help your community at this time. And I think it's a good starting point for that conversation. And all of that is on www.c, as in Charlie, f as in Frank, children.org. That's right. Right. Well, thank you for spending this time with us, especially your expertise around this very important topic. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Jordan. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.